You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey! Hey, happy Saturday, everybody. Quarantine day number 491. <laughs> it is a Saturday, though. I think it's day 37 for us. Same difference. <laughs> Emily's been keeping track on her wall. Yes. Welcome to All The Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is the show where we talk about all of the current cultural issues and topics happening in the world from a historically Christian perspective. And helping us out on the show today is Bob Bontrager, also known as Bob the Button Pusher. Hello! His camera's not on. Womp womp. That's my favorite part of the show. So we can't see him today, but he is here and he's doing all the things for the show. Yes, and also helping us on the show with dinner is Abby. So if you hear some uh, uh, activity in the background, we're just going to hope nothing um, happens because we have a very sensitive smoke detector three feet behind me. <laughs> Let's just keep it real, people. This is our house. This okay? is our living room. Yes. Welcome to our living room. This is our home. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Support the show. Share the show. Like the show. Tell a friend. Comment. Um, follow. Comment. Yes. 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 We have a good show today. Yes. On all of those things help our algorithm. Um, sometimes social media isn't always friendly with us. Um, so we really need your help to share the show. So that is the best way that you can help us is help spread the good word. And we do have an amazing guest tonight. We also want to invite people to join us in the chat box yes. on YouTube. You can go right to the YouTube stream and our, some of our normal friends are not our normal friends. Our, are you saying they're not normal? I know our regular friends, our weekly friends are checking in there. Hartley family. Hello. Give them a shout out. Our friend Susanna is here. She's saying hi to Bob, the button pusher. Yay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Amy says, yay, Bob. Yay. We have some Bob All fans. Right. <laughs> so we are excited to have you here. And yes, this is welcome to day 37 of the quarantine. We're, we're over it, people. We want to go back outside. Well, I go to work. I want to go to the mall. So. Oh, yeah. In the movie theater. No. No, I don't want to go to the movie theater. Not a fan. Not a fan. Not yet. So but, speaking of the yes. quarantine, one of the things I'm starting to see is um, a lot of places like the animals are feeling lost. They're like, where are the humans? No, and I think they're really saying, thank God the humans are gone. <laughs> because now they're coming out and wandering into spaces that were previously occupied by humans that uh, they couldn't venture into. That's right. I saw a video today of some wolves on a street just howling. They, there were no humans around. But yeah. I saw this video and it made me think of you. It's penguins uh. in South Africa. Yes. <laughs> so I was in South Africa. I was in Cape Town where you used to live. And it just made me laugh because I showed it to you and you're like, I think I know where that is. I think I do. <laughs> yes. But they're walkulous like humans. And you and I have talked about penguins before. You said they're not nice birds. I don't really care for penguins. I remember having to walk through. I don't know if they're a flock because it's a bird. But, you know, I had to walk through something to get into a restaurant one time. And I was just like, oh, please don't attack me. They are, they're peculiar. They're just walking down the street. Yes. They like they like, own it. Like little humans. All we need is a baboon to come on out. A baboon. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> but even in, I think, um, in Kruger National Park, like the lions are, and I feel like. Oh, is that in South it, Africa? Uh-huh. It's on the, the eastern side. And I, I feel like the lions there, though, they, they'll do what they got to do anyway. <laughs> but now they're just like out laying and sunbathing on the road and things like that. So I'm just like, oh. Yeah, see what happens when when humans get put on timeout. Yeah, right. I was thinking about that today. I was like, you know, the whole world got put on timeout because we didn't wash our hands correctly. (laughs) It's like, wow, I feel like a kindergartner. (laughs) We're having to relearn some things here, people. Yes, yes. If you can just wash your hands, you too will be able to go out and play. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so um, while we're on quarantine, we've been... Uh, we've made a few comments on the on recent shows about the nature of an essential service. Yes. What is essential? Who's determining what's essential? If I could, I'd say getting my eyebrows done would be an essential service. <laughs> getting my hair done would be an essential service. Getting those braids. Yes. We miss the braids. Yes. Yes, we do. So, but uh, we have, uh, I think on Easter, you looked up whether or not the local Planned Parenthood here in town was open. Was it was open. open on Easter. I was like, this has got to be some kind of hellish sin to be open on Easter. That's wrong. For for abortions. That, yes, that's wrong. So, if I can't go to the mall on Easter. I, I was, <laughs> we couldn't go to church on Easter. I, oh, there's that. <laughs> Come but, now. Sorry. <laughs> but I, I, the, the level and definition of essential service, I am like, who wrote this definition? Yeah. We can't, I can't go into a restaurant. I can't, you know, stand six feet by somebody else. I can't have to wait in an hour line at the bank. But I can go, yes, I can go to the liquor store. I can have an abortion. I can do all kinds of other things. Like, I feel like famous people get their makeup done. See, this is what I want to know. All these famous people, they're all of a sudden they got pop up studios in their homes. You really think those people are going on camera without having makeup people come That's, to their house? I want to know who does our governor's makeup before he goes on camera. Do you think his staff? Do they is, have like a long all, brush. Do you think that his staff is all furloughed? Mm. I don't think so. You think he's doing his own cooking? Because I, I, I don't know. I just, the inquiring minds want to know these things. I just feel like people, I need some, some things don't have to be open right away. We, I don't like movies. Really, we don't have to go to a whole bunch of movies. Keep the movie theaters closed. That's okay. Can we get my eyebrows done? So I'm not four braids. <laughs> These are the things that go through my head, people. Okay. But anyway, we but, have a good show tonight. Yeah, tell us. Let's introduce the guests because we don't want her to run away from all your eyebrow jokes. Oh, that's true. Um, so <laughs> a couple weeks ago, you made a big comment and you were like, you need to get Sam Say on our show. Get Sam. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I can try. And then the next day I wrote an email and um, just asked if he would be willing to come on our show. So who is Sam Say? Sam Say is a blogger and he's also a pro-life advocate. And so he writes a lot about pro-life issues, but then also I feel like critical race theory issues or critical theory issues. He has a good mix yeah. of, of writings yeah. on social media um, and so or on his blog. And yeah, I think that um, I well, I was introduced to him or was told about him through someone else. And then you mentioned his name. Yeah. And I was like, OK, OK. So I so, think everyone will enjoy. Yeah, I'm really looking forward him. to talking to him. So we saw this blog post um, that he wrote about the pro-life issue. And I think Bob's got it over here. Or, What's it called? The identity politics. 
is a threat to the pro-life movement. And um, yeah, that's the one that just came out a week or so ago. But what I really think is good is Sam's trying to explore, you know, this whole situation with why is abortion considered an essential service? And he's got a theory about that. So let's get him on here. We're going to fire up the Zoom machine. Yes. And talk to our new friend, Sam Say. <laughs> Welcome to the program, Sam. Well, nice nice to be here. I actually didn't want to, um, you know, I was enjoying what you guys were saying earlier with the eyebrows <laughs> and everything. I was like, you know what? I can just stay, you know, right here, just stay in the back and just hear you guys talk about this issue. No, nah, but it's real. Like, it's real. But you know what? Just something between, between us. So I sent him the information on how to get on Zoom, but I left off a piece. Oh. So, yeah, so there was that information. So he, I, he just, he texted, or no, he called, he emailed me this morning and was like, hey, you know, everything's still good. And I said, yeah, everything's still good, but here's my number just in case. Thank God I did because then he called. And when I looked at my phone, it said Ontario. I was like, the Sam Say is calling me? What? <laughs> what? I have arrived? Come on, Jesus. <laughs> There are, there are people who get upset when I call them because like this guy again. So I don't know. So I don't know why you'd be so honored by that. Because I, I, I just was. I was like, wow, he's the one who writes all this. I love the way he thinks. And now he, on my phone, people, this phone right here. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Sam. We tried to introduce you a little bit to our viewers, but mm. maybe tell us how you uh, came into. Uh, the situation with being involved with the pro-life conversation. Yeah. Um, I suppose it somewhat starts when I was um, 19. Uh, a, a friend of mine that I was pretty close to, this is uh, she, it was, you know, a woman and she would, um, her and I were very close and once in a while she'd give me a call and we'd just talk about random things. And um, her and I had this thing where we just ask each other uh, random hypothetical questions. So uh, one day she called me and uh, she was also 19. She called me and she's like, Sam, what would you say to a girl considering an abortion? And I thought it was just one of those random questions. So at the time, um, actually, no, I was 18. I was a 19. Um, and I wasn't, a, I wasn't a Christian and I didn't really thought much about the abortion issue. So I just simply said, I don't know. Um, a year later, I learned that days after that question, she went to an abortion clinic, or I should say center, because it's not a clinic, but an abortion center, and uh, they killed her baby. Mm -hmm. um, that has left me with a lot of guilt, um, you know, because if I had just said what I know now, um, there would be another 14-year-old um, in Ontario. Um, and um, so that left a very big impact on me. And when I became a Christian, I slowly started to um just learn because just by becoming a christian i knew more of what to say on that issue uh now but then it wasn't until black lives matter um you know started happening where i became more passionate about it as well too on top of what would, what had already happened in my life um because you know all around me uh people were talking about black lives matter and all this stuff and i just kept thinking well wait a minute it's you know, I mean, we'll get into it, you know, in a few, later on, but I didn't quite agree with most of my friends' views on Black Lives Matter. But I kept doing more research as to what's killing Black people the most in America um, and Canada as well, too. And um, it was 
abortion. So that got me more passionate about it as well. And then uh, a friend of mine told me about an opportunity um, two years ago for an internship at a pro-life organization called the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. It's a mouthful, so I always have to slow down when I, when I say it. Uh, it's short, it's, CCBR is a short um, uh, version of the, of the name. And uh, yeah, I did an internship and um, that really changed that. I loved it so much, I, I, it changed my life. And um, I was put in a position where now I could save babies, you know, that I couldn't save before, um, you know. So that was a way for me to kind of rectify what had happened when I was 18 years old. And uh, it's been an honor to be a pro-life advocate. But um, while that's kind of going on over the last five years, I've been blogging as well, which primarily was because of the Black Lives Matter issue. I wanted to explain to my friends why Black Lives Matter was not only incorrect, but I would also say very harmful and not helpful at all. And, um, you know, so that kind of led me to blogging and slowly, uh, about, I guess, two years ago, I wrote an article um, about how some Christians were really coming to embrace um, this kind of Black Lives Matter, this kind of critical theory, social justice issue to, um, you know, again, you know, without harm, uh, our, not only our neighbors, but also our theology. Um, because I, I think that the article was titled Moses or Marx, which is God through Moses and through all the other prophets in the Bible, including obviously Christ and the apostles. Um, you know, they the way they explain justice is not at all compatible with how Karl Marx and a critical theorist would explain justice. So I wrote an article and it kind of blew up. And, um, you know, I've been kind of very grateful that people since then have been kind of sticking around and reading my work and stuff. And uh, on a personal side, I was born in Ghana, uh, raised by a single mother who was, um, you know, who is extremely faithful and a great mom. And, um, you know, my, my father left our family before we were born, before I was born. And, um, I've always known, you know, that if it wasn't for her Christianity and her toughness, um, I, you know, I would be very at risk myself to get, you know, as to being aborted. So that kind of also fueled my passion as well, too. But anyway, um, I spent the first 10 years of my life in Ghana, um, and then I moved to Canada, um, and uh, I've been here, I guess, over the last 22 years now. I'm 32. So, um, yeah, that's that's basically me. <laughs> hey, can you talk a little bit more about that Black Lives Matter piece in regards to um, the like how you coupled it with abortion? And yeah. I guess my, my, my main question is, what was it about Black Lives Matter that you saw as being important in the conversation of abortion? Yeah. Well, both directly and indirectly, I saw big problems with Black Lives Matter, which is the Black Lives Matter organization themselves, they are extremely pro-abortion. Um, and I didn't quite understand that. Because if you're going to say, because if you are passionate enough about the issue, that when r- roughly... In America, it's about 10 to 15, maybe 20, but let's say generally 10 to 15, sorry, 10 to 20 um, unarmed black people that get killed by police officers. Now, you can argue whether it's because of racism or not. I say that generally the facts show that it's not really racism. But let's just, even if you assume that's the case, that's 10, 20 unarmed black men killed or, or women too killed by cops. Well, in America, it's roughly 300,000 black American babies that get killed every year. 
Now, there is no debate as to what happens there. They actually get killed, right? With, uh, with, with intentional, I mean, but with, with cops, there's a debate as to whether it's justified or not. There is no debate whatsoever that is justified to kill babies. So that I just couldn't quite understand. Then, of course, you also have the issue of black and black crime, where people actually hate, you know, hate that uh, that uh, idea. But it is an issue. Uh, I think it's roughly three thousand black men in America that get killed every year. So I'm thinking, if the two, um, you know, black and black crime and abortion is killing thousands of black men and women, but then you have ten to twenty black people who are being killed by cops. But again, there's an there's a good argument that it could be justified. Why aren't you at the very least addressing both, but instead you're actually very pro-abortion? So that was the first, the first thing. The other thing, which I guess is inherent as to what I've already said, is Black Lives Matter, their, their views were much more theoretical than it was factual, factual I should say. Um, because they just simply assume because of their ideology, because of their critical race theory, which we'll get into maybe perhaps later on, but because of their view, anything at all, anything that seems racist is racist. No, no doubt about it. So if a cop shoots, if a white cop shoots a black person, there's no question that it's because of racism. Uh, I asked a, um, I, won't, I won't mention a person, but I asked a white person um, who had embraced this idea Okay, so you're telling me that, you know, well, I asked, how would you feel if a white cop shoots a black kid? Now, and, but, this, but this white cop is actually a Christian, and he swears and, well, I mean, I meant like he promises, or he promises, and he's like, no, I, it, was, it was justified, right? You know, even though, he, even though he was unarmed, I thought he had maybe a, a gun when he didn't, just whatever. He's just saying that I was trying to do my job as a cop to protect myself, if my life is, you know, is um, is in danger. But yet, black people in the community say, "We're sorry. We think you're racist," even though the evidence only suggests that. I asked this white person, who's a prominent Christian, um, you know, you know, who's a leader, um, how would you respond to that? Is it racist or not? He said, "Well, maybe he didn't mean to be racist, but the society as a whole is racist." And him being, I'm like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I mean. <laughs> The Bible is very clear on this issue that if you if you don't know the facts, you assume the best of the person. Unless you have the facts, you have to, right? That love hopes all things. So now you are abandoning biblical theology to embrace a worldview that is anti-biblical theology, and that really scared me. And Black Lives Matter is very full of that rhetoric, that critical race theory, that identity politics, that um, social justice ideology. And um, so, so those are the reasons why I did not embrace Black Lives Matter, because I saw that it was relying more on a theory that was incorrect and ignoring the data. Um, you know, and of course, they're very much focused on disparities as well, too, where in their mind, if there is a disparity, that right in there is, an, is, is, an, is evidence of an injustice, instead of looking at perhaps other underlying issues that factor into that. All right. Yes, I, I agree with a lot of it. That's good stuff. That's a good word. Well, let me uh, show the correct blog post here. <laughs> Why abortion is an essential business for socialism. This is the correct blog post. Um, and 
I think that you're kind of starting to touch on some of those issues because um, I want to explore, you know, some of your theory about why you think it's it's been considered an essential service. But we do also want to tie it into some thoughts about critical theory, because I know Monique's got some some thoughts about about that as well. So, yeah, definitely. I um, just in what he was saying right now, I I, I used to be hugely um, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I used to. I, I came I, in. I, I came I in a little. That. Oh, no. I, I came I, in a little slow. I have a memory of that. <laughs> um, but you was know, I, was you... I triggering you a little bit there? Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> but, but you know, in understanding, I think more of the biblical perspective of it, and looking at a more um, well-rounded idea of justice and what is just and what is considered unjust or what is injustice. Um, within our society and looking at the numbers of abortion and looking at um, racism from blacks toward other people groups, you know, what are, what, what are we taking into consideration when we're saying black lives matter? Yeah. So yeah, I agreed with a, with a lot of that, but I don't want to go down that trail because I think that will take us down a completely different aisle. <laughs> and I would love to go down that aisle, but I'm going to stay in the aisle that we in. stay in your lane. <laughs> um, what, why do you think that abortion is being considered an essential service? You like said this so well in the blog post, but um, share it with all of us. Why do you think it's, mm-hmm. it's considered essential? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose I have a lot of controversial views and, um, um, I essentially my, I'm a bit, I'm very concerned about our reaction to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you know, I know the government has our governments, uh, both Canada and America has, you know, they have uh, good intentions, but I think, uh, some people say, um, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, um, you know, I imagine that even Karl Marx had some good intentions, I'm sure, too. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't justify, you know, I think some of these things. And what I mean is, um, you know, no matter how we want to slice it, we right now, both America and Canada, we live in what I would call a crisis socialism, which is a lot of people, a lot of capitalists, a lot of libertarians or conservatives have embraced this idea that, you know, that it's wrong to be socialist permanently, but temporarily it's okay. Which I don't quite understand that. Um, if, if you believe in, if you believe in liberty, then you should believe in liberty at all times, including especially the most difficult times. Um, I'm not saying anyone should be careless during this time. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, I don't think it's right for the government to force people to be out of work. That's destroying lives. Not only that, it's killing lives, lives actually. Um, there's been uh, some reports coming out that um, people estimate that people could, around the world, 130 million people could, um, could um, starve to death because of this, um, this economic crisis as well. So um, anyway, but, so I, I mentioned that to say the reason why I think that during this crisis socialism, why abortion is considered a, an essential uh, service is because socialists have a history of being extremely pro-abortion. Uh, it's actually very at the very core of their their views because they don't really believe in individual rights. They don't believe in liberty. They believe in sacrificing liberty or individual rights for the common good. Which, if you've been hearing a lot of what we've been hearing from the media and and politicians, that's very similar to what they're saying. 
that, you know, we should all essentially lose our liberty and our rights um, to help our neighbors. Now, of course, I want to help our neighbors. I want to do that. But we should recommend that. We should enforce people to lose their jobs. I, I went to um, my, one of my local restaurants around here and, um, you know, the guy was telling me with just devastated that he's going to probably lose the, the business. Um, and I, and it, it, again, I, uh, we want to save lives, but you know, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just say this. I, I, I keep thinking of, of, um, about this issue or I mean this story during this whole crisis. When I was in college, um, in my philosophy class, my teacher asked a question and I'll never forget the response to it. He said uh, to the whole class, maybe about 30 or 40 of us in the class. And he says, is it wrong for a father or a husband of a very starving family? Like this family will starve to death unless he robs a store. Is that wrong? The entire class it had their hands down. I raised my hand. And I'll never forget that there was one of my classmates said, really? You're an awful person. You don't care about their death. And I said, I care. I just think that it's wrong to steal. It just is. It's wrong to steal at the best of times or at the worst of times. And that's how I'm kind of seeing this issue. If it's wrong for the government to force people to lose their jobs at any time, it's also wrong in the worst time. But anyway, going back to abortion, because socialists or even crisis socialists believe in sacrificing liberty and individualism and individual rights for the sake of common good, abortion, they say, well, it's actually for the common good of our society or for women to get abortions, even if it's sacrificing preborn babies' lives themselves. And that's how I, uh, I explained the article. If you could only see Krista and her shouts and cheers for joy. And yes, she is like, he is preaching a good word. Yes. Yes. That is fantastic. Are you, are you sure you're Californian? Because uh, I have a different view of Californians. from. <laughs> I'm, I'm just teasing. Oh, I'm just no, teasing. That, that was some... That was some good preaching right there, because, I mean, I I love it that you're kind of calling out the socialism and calling a thing a thing. Like, you're you're pretty fearless. I, I like that. Um, one of our viewers makes a good point. Kimba, she says, um, plus they make a lot of money from baby tissue. I think yes. that's just something else to keep in mind. Like, yes. when, when you think about the socialism issue, when you think about the, yeah. the financial gain and all that, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. I think what and, is is really important to point out, I just want to make sure that people are catching your your case, Sam, because um, even it, one of the points you make in your blog post is that Margaret Sanger, the, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was an advocate of socialism. And we are in functional socialism right now. And I think that some states in America are going to be fighting how long this functional socialism lasts. There are some governors who are saying it's going to last until we have vaccines. There are other governors who are of a more libertarian or conservative mindset that are trying to get their states out of this as quickly as possible. But socialism is as part of a a wider world view and abortion is part of that. And I've been saying on the show for several weeks now that one of I think that one of the criteria for 
what is being considered an essential service and what is not is based on functional naturalism. Food is an essential service because we think we're just physical bodies. Church gatherings are not an essential service because Mm. we are functional naturalists. We're not going to tend to the soul. We're not going to tend to connection and in human relationships in that way. We're not going to make provisions for that in a safe way. And again, I'm like you, I'm not talking about being reckless, but I think if we're making a provision, I can go down to my Walmart and there's 2000 people in there. Certainly we can figure out a a safe provision for going to church, Mm -hmm. but our government doesn't care about that because they're operating according to the worldview of naturalism. Socialism is connected to the worldview of naturalism. Abortion is part of that. These are all interconnected ideas. I'm wondering what you think about that. No, I completely agree with you. I, 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 I wanted you to say hallelujah. I, no, I, you're, you're preaching to me now. Cause no, really it, it, you're right. Um, and I want to say one more thing too, um, in light of what one of the, um, uh, the audience members, um, you know, well, one of the commentators said, which is, this is also about money for sure. Um, see Planned Parenthood, they tried, I don't, I'm not, I didn't read the, uh, I think what the stimulus package or the bill, or whatever it's called. I didn't read it entirely. I read some parts of it. It's thousands but, of pages. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yes. But, but Planned Parenthood and the Democrats try to get funding for Planned Parenthood during this time. Right. And that's also because they also know, think about it, right. They, even outside, even outside of this pandemic, they've been saying for a long time that abortion is an essential women's rights issue. They've been saying that abortion is a healthcare issue. So imagine what it would look like if they said, you know what, at this time, at this very crucial time, let's, let's uh, close down these abortion centers and Planned Parenthood. What does, what is the message? What does, what does that convey? It conveys that it's not really a healthcare issue. It conveys that it's not really an essential issue. And they know that. So that's why I think they're also, also making sure they protect that issue. Um, the pro-choice people are very, very good at knowing the slippery slope. They know that if they allow room uh, for them to be seen as less essential, then if we come out of this pandemic, we'll say, wait a minute, if you want a healthcare issue during a healthcare crisis, then what's the point of having you around as a healthcare issue permanently? So I think they see that too. And I think that's why they were very much fighting for more funding and also just for them to, be, to stay as an essential service good thoughts i love your voice in this space i think um a lot of times when we have pro-life pro-choice conversations we have it we have those conversations with women and men don't really tend to enter into that space or use their voice in that space can you tell us a bit about why you think it's important for men to step into that conversation well i think even along those lines critical theory is telling men your voice doesn't matter. Your yeah. voice well, doesn't yeah. count. I agree with yeah. that, that like the whole down with the patriarchy yeah. and all of yeah. that. I yeah. just, I think historically, even outside of, of critical theory, well, I don't know now, now, now that you bring that up, because like even the whole my body, my choice talks about oppression and oppressor and being liberated from your oppressor and things like that, being yeah. able to, to make your own choice. So yeah. I don't know. Tell us a little bit about um, yeah. how you see men in this conversation and the benefit of it yeah um (laughs) uh, when i'm out there doing um pro-life advocacy uh oftentimes a lot of women come up to me thinking they have me by saying this like what you're a man how can you talk about this issue then i say okay 
if you were, because I try to use their thinking against them, and I say, okay, if while I'm talking to you right now and a white cop came to me and wanted to shoot me in my face, what would you say? They say, well, I would say that's wrong. I say, why? But you're not black, right? Then they say, oh, yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, but I'm human. You would want to speak on my behalf because I'm human and you know it's the right thing to do. So even though I'm not a woman or a preborn baby, if it's wrong to kill babies, then anyone should be able to speak up on it. Um, but it's extremely important that men speak on this issue because frankly, abortion wouldn't be legal if men had been faithful in our roles in society and in the family. Um, look, men, unfortunately, have not loved, as a society, we've not loved our wives or girlfriends and our babies as well as we should. And look, I, I always ask, um, not always, but I ask women a lot, um, women, women who are pro-abortion, I, I say, if your boyfriend were to come to you when, you, if, when, you, when you're pregnant, and she said, sorry, and, he, and they said, look, I know you want to have an abortion, but I'm telling you, I love you so much. I love, I would love our baby. I'm committed to taking care of you. Doesn't matter what happens. I'm there for you. I'm committed. I will do anything, anything to love you and our child. What would you do? Most of them tell me they'll keep the baby. The point is, women oftentimes feel they have no other choice to get abortions because men don't give them the choice of feeling, feeling loved and feeling um, pro, just, just, being, being, uh, being, just being loved and protected by them. That's, so that's part of the issue here. Our silence and our lack of faithfulness or love towards women and children is part of the problem. But also, uh, Roe v. Wade was, um, you know, was, was passed by an all-male Supreme Court, um, you know, uh, justice. And the issue is men also allowed it to be legal. And if we're going to make abortion illegal, then we're also going to have to get involved in the issue. And also, I think when people see myself and many other men involved in the, pro, in the pro-life movement, they see a visual uh, representation of what abortion really is, that it's a human rights violation. It's not a women's rights issue, right? It's much more than that, you know? Um, you know so I think that's why it's important because uh, again, men have failed and I think men need to step up and, and say, you know what, we failed, but we're gonna try and uh, change that. But also again, we show that it's a human rights issue and not a women's rights issue. I agree with that. And I also think that it's important to say that what you're hitting on now is an issue no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what skin color you wear, there are women of every skin color receiving abortions and men that have stepped out of the picture or have not stepped up to the plate in every category. And so this just doesn't like bear for like black women or things like that, even though our numbers are a lot higher statistically, this is still an everybody issue. Mm-hmm. So are you going to go to this question? No. Oh, okay. I thought you were. Oh, I thought you were. <laughs> we're, we're professional here at all the things. We are. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> but you can. All right. Well, I thought it would, maybe it would be a better question for you, but I, no. Okay. So, so we've already touched on the issue of kind of critical race theory in the abortion discussion and, 
you know, yeah. Black Lives Matter in particular. I'm just wondering if we might explore that a little bit more as to, you know, how you see or if you see critical theory or critical race theory um, at work in the abortion conversation. Yeah. Um, I so critical theory, social justice, identity politics, they're all really the same thing. Right. They're all uh, very much focused on seeing on, on a worldview that sees um, sees particularly white people, especially white, you know, straight white men as oppressive to different groups. So in critical race theory, um, they perceive the world as being very anti-black, especially anti-black women. So naturally, um, and, and this is true historically too, that unfortunately uh, in America and Canada, um, uh, you know, but especially in America, black women's bodies were, um, you know, were used for evil, whether it was through rape from slave masters or if it was through medical um, uh, just research um, and eugenics, all those things. And, you know, th th that obviously is a problem. But because of that, then people see abortion as a way of black women controlling their bodies against white men. Mm. Well, and, I've never um, thought about it like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and there are some critical race theorists who are anti-abortion, but the vast majority, the vast, vast majority are very pro-life because they say, well, we finally get a chance to control our own bodies now. And look, that's one of the consequences of white supremacy. It really is that. So look, uh, just to correct or inquire what you said with the vast majority of critical race theory advocates are pro-choice or pro abortion. Yeah. Pro-abortion. Pro yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. Oh, I'm sorry. Right? No, no, no. That's not. That's not you. That's just me. That's not. That's just me. But um, but yeah. So so I see that right, and I and I and I know. Oftentimes, I will talk to you know a lot of black women about abortion, and they don't see the black baby. They just see the black body, the black woman's body. They're saying, "Look, I I want to have this choice to." you know, because it's my body. That's how you don't see the woman, you know, the, the baby's body. So I see that big time. And also critical race theory, unfortunately, has a history and it's, it's, it's inherent in the ideology, but it naturally always is seeing things from the outside. It's seeing what straight white males or other white people or non-black people are doing against black people or black women but they don't see the action. So I'll put it this way. They see injustices where there is none at times, but they don't see injustice where there is some. What I mean by that is, even if a white man or a white society, whatever, you know, American society isn't racist, they'll find it. They'll find it because that's just part of the, the ideology. But when there is an injustice within the black family or the black community, or even that black, black, black body, they won't see it. What I mean by that is even an abortion where it's clearly an injustice by the black woman killing or any, any, any uh, woman, obviously, right? I just mean in this case, when it comes to critical theory or critical race theory, when it's the black woman killing the child, they're not seeing the injustice of that. They're saying, I'm making this choice because white supremacy has made me poor. White supremacy has given me no other choice. 
That's how they see it. So it's always on the outside and it's never internal. And that obviously leads to more and more babies being killed. It leads to, in New York, it's been said many times, but it still needs to be said because it's quite shocking, where there are more pre-born babies killed, where there are more babies being killed in New York than they are being born, right? Because critical race theory is always blaming the white man for things that aren't there, but ignoring black, black men and black women for actions that's being done to actually hurt black babies. Yes. Would you consider it then like an overcorrection? So I I get what you're saying about, you know, it's my choice. I'm finally going to have a choice. Um, There was slavery. There was this. There was that. And now it's my turn to choose for myself what happens to my body. Yeah, absolutely. Because when when you were talking, I was thinking about authors, black authors like Richard Wright or Langston Hughes. And they also mention these things like um, there's a poem by by Langston Hughes. And um, he talks about like children being sold away from their mothers and husbands being sold away yep. from from wives. Yep. And like there was no no dignity, value and worth due to that to the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Negro Mother. It's it's one of my most favorite poems. But mm-hmm. I, I would all I've read it from that lens for so long. And now when you're talking, I'm like, oh, OK, this is actually what he was talking about. You know, this this is now we're, we're now in a season of overcorrection of, mm-hmm. you know, this is what was done to us instead of looking at like, OK, yes, this is what was done. How are we going to move forward from here without continuing harm? on our own people or on our own bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering what factors are happening in the black community that either of you yeah. or both of you think contribute to high abortion rates in the black community. Cause they do seem to be disproportionately high mm-hmm. in, in the black community. Yeah. It's extremely high. Yeah. This is where um, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure historical factors play a role. I think the critical race theorists, um, they give their theory. And it's legitimate in some ways, like I said earlier, that they really see it as well as having control of our own bodies now. But it's much more than that. Um, look, most black people, the average black person has no idea what critical th- race theory is. I mean, now, it's, I'm sure they, they're familiar with it in terms of what's being said, just, just the ideology within the, you know, friends and things like that. But people aren't usually thinking of theories and ideologies when they're getting an abortion. You're just thinking of their own personal lives. Um, but this is something I'm very passionate about because growing up without a father, uh, and, and these people just tend to dismiss this stuff, and it, it, to me it's frustrating because it really is a key issue. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact number, but women who grow up without fathers are extremely likely to get abortion. That's just that's just a fact. Much, much more likely than the average person who has a father growing up. So that's one. Also, if you are fatherless, you're more likely than anybody else, um, well, people who have fathers, to be poor or to not graduate from school. And also to have early sexual activity. That also is, these are all facts. All those things play a role in abortion. That's why, and because unfortunately, the black, you know, um, look, (laughs) I think um, 72% of black men or black children 
do not have fathers in their lives. I'll compare that to white people where it's, um, I think, only about 30%. 40% gap. That's going to create some massive disparities. So that plays a big role. And because of that, a lot of Black children grow up in, in an environment where they're going to be more poor and they're not going to have this kind of stability. Now, I'm not saying that, look, people who have fathers in their lives and everything else, they get abortions too. But by, by the numbers, people are much more likely to get abortions when they don't have fathers in the home because of all the other ensuing things that comes with that. I agree with that. And I agree with like the stats and the numbers. And it makes me think of welfare and like the institution of welfare and how many families in the black community um, separated and how many um, women like the 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 percentage of black women who were single mothers skyrocketed. After yep. um, the inception of, of welfare, it was mm-hmm. almost like saying black men, you're not needed. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't, we mm-hmm. don't need you to make a family mm-hmm. anymore. You can go out and do your own thing. And at the same time, you look at the rise in abortions within black women. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, I agree. Like it all goes yeah. very hand in yep. hand. And we know historically, like where welfare is, there's larger amounts of poverty. There's larger yep. amounts of violence. I wouldn't yep. personally want to, and I'm not saying I'd have an abortion, but I wouldn't personally want to raise a child in the middle of violence and poverty yeah. and not having yeah. support and all of these things. But there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. But that's a very common argument that I hear in the black community is, well, you can't, it's, it's not moral to ask a single black woman who's living on welfare and in, you know, working full time, like don't ask her to have a, have a child. Like that's not moral there. She needs to have the freedom to have the abortion. It's, it's more immoral to bring a child into that difficult socioeconomic situation. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you begin to address that? Were you going to say something? Go ahead. Well, I'm not sure. Um, please, after I say this, maybe you can ask uh, that question again, because I don't, I don't know if I heard it properly. But one thing I wanted to say, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just, I, I when I listen to people in the black community, the argument I hear a lot of the time, and maybe Monique, you can help me ask it in a clearer way, but it, it the, the argument I hear coming forward is to ask a single black woman who is maybe on welfare or working full time to bring a child into the world is more immoral than the abortion. You don't want to raise that child in poverty. What kind of life will they have? And that's a reason that's frequently given, at least one that I hear of why abortion is, is warranted. But I think there are bigger things to talk about. Like, I don't know. You you know me and my my whole philosophy stuff. It could be a straw man or one of those little <laughs> arguments. But I'm, you know, I think that there are other conversations that need to be had. We wouldn't be at the conversation of I need an abortion if somebody would have sat you down and said you don't need to have sex. Yeah. Like let's yeah. let's go back to the beginning. How are you valuing yourself? How are you valuing the the person that you're sleeping with? Um, where is the image of God in them? Like we are missing so many conversations and now we're jumping yeah. to the end and saying, oh, it's immoral to have an abortion. But I, yeah. I hear even Christian social justice people saying 
you know, hey, we need to have understanding and compassion yeah. Yeah. for these women, so, you know, that are in that situation. I'll be honest. Uh, when people say that stuff, it infuriates me. Um, look, I've had many, I, I'll never forget, one of my favorite, um, I spoke to this young black woman who grew up in a foster home system and she was telling me that she can never, like she, she thinks she's very pro-abortion because she doesn't want people to go through what she did being raised in a foster home and the poverty and everything else. And then I said, are you glad you went through those things? She says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you have a good job right now and you seem to be doing really good. Like, are you proud of yourself? She said, well, you know what? I'm actually very proud of myself because I went through all those difficult things and I overcame them. And I said, interesting. Don't you want other people to overcome their obstacles too? And her eyes went like this. She's like, oh, you're right. And I said to her, look, we all have obstacles, but people who tend to be more proud of themselves, people who tend to be more inspiring, more influential, more heroic are people who overcome extreme challenges because that's what life is about, it's overcoming challenges. So if people are being born in an environment where they're gonna have poverty, that's actually more of an incentive to value their lives, not to devalue it, because they can actually inspire more people. I'm inspired by people like that. And um, one other thing too is this, black people, are very resilient. You see this throughout history. It's quite remarkable. Like people forget this. Like, I mean, we don't forget it, but we don't we don't see it the right way. We always talk about how, man, black people in America have had, you know, they've gone through slavery and the civil rights movement. They're still there. They're they're thriving. Actually, because black black Americans have the what eighth or seventh highest GDP in the world. Coming from slavery just 150 years ago, that's quite remarkable. It's not even just, even the civil rights movement just 50 years ago, it's quite remarkable. And I think this idea that black, black people or black mothers need to be coddled. Now they should be loved, should be cared for, they should receive justice, but to be coddled as if they're weak? No, I have a black mom, I have a black sister. They're the toughest people I know. They can overcome anything. Black babies like anybody else can, come, can, can overcome anything. One more thing too. I think one of the reasons why a lot of black women get abortions is because they see the single mothers. They see that and they know how hard that is. And some of them think, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to go through that at all. So you know what? I'm not going to get uh, pregnant. If I do get pregnant, I'm getting an abortion. And the facts are that black women also do, are also doing better economically. Well, not so, okay, educationally than, uh, than black men are because black men are dropping the ball and a lot of black women are doing very well. So if you are a black woman and you're thinking, well, you can't rely on men because your father wasn't in the home, your boyfriend isn't doing that great you know, educationally, and then you get pregnant, you're thinking, well, if I have a baby, who will take care of me? It's just me and myself. So then oftentimes they think the only hope they have is to get the abortion because they just can't trust men. You know, and I think um, those are all the things that leads to why the rates are so high in black communities. It it sounds like it's coming from a place of almost good intention. Like, I don't want to bring a baby up in poverty. I don't want to, um, you know, struggle or have my child struggle or things like that. But at the at the end of the day, it's destructive to the community. It's destructive mm-hmm. to the person. It's 
it's definitely destructive to the child that was now aborted. You know what I mean? There's so much destruction that no one is really talking about. And it, it makes me think about black churches and how do you see black churches as being able to be a voice in this space or like, do you see that at all? Cause if you do, I'm missing it. You know, one of the most, <laughs> it's hard to explain this a little bit sometimes because black people are very pro-life. Uh, we're very religious and uh, we're more religious. Than, so we are more religious than any other group in, you know, in Canada and America. And, um, so you would think that means we would actually not, you know, the, the rates wouldn't be as high in black uh, communities, but the issue is black leaders are not stepping up. I, let's face it. Let's think of all the black leaders right now in America. Who is the most, who, who is pro-life? It's hard to, it's hard to know. Now there are some obviously, but they're not the most vocal prominent speakers in America. Well, that's, that's to- always my question to Monique is I, I've asked her that question before. So I'm feeling sort of vindicated right now. I'm like, who's the big, the big voice in the black community yeah. that's standing up and saying, Hey, let's stop killing our children. Maybe yeah. this is not a hot idea. Where's that prophetic voice yeah. in the black community? I, I don't know if it has to be like a TD Jakes or, you know, like but it some, would be nice it, if he it would. It would be, it would be. But I think that the the conversation might even have more impact if it was the local guy, like the local pastor, saying, "Hey, this yeah. is my community," yeah. as opposed to let me broadly speak to all of the blacks in America. No, how about here? Let me start like a TD Jakes. Let me start a training program. How do you have conversations with your congregants? on abortion yeah and then yeah. have that conversation locally because you have the direct relationship with them pastor yeah. jakes reach out to us <laughs> we will get you connected with thoughtful yeah. intellectual young black people to help you start those conversations yeah. in your church but, but it's so it's so, so real you know and and you know yeah. it's, no one wants to offend no one wants to have this conversation or what are they going to think yeah. are they going to stop coming you know they stop coming yeah. they're going to stop tithing and totally. da 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 you know, across, across the board, black churches don't talk about abortion. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's they, don't, they don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'll tell you this: that friend of mine that I told you about who got an abortion, her and I went to the same church. I, I find it interesting that she never went to the pastor or anybody else. She came to me, some, you know, just one of her friends, um, because black pastors aren't talking about this issue at all. They're not addressing this issue. In fact, the people who are most the the Christians who are most uh, pro-life from the pulpit are just white pastors. Um, and, you know, that's not bad at all. That's, I'm glad they're talking about it, about it as well. But it's sad to me that the people who are actually in these churches, who are, you know, in the lives of so many Black people are actually not addressing this issue. So, uh, and also, I think it's in an odd way, I think Black people, sorry, Black women being more, um, more Christian or religious than most people is actually also sometimes part of the reason why they get abortions in the sense that they know the shame that, that comes with pregnancy. Look, when I grew up, sorry, when I grew up um, in an you know, African church, I never heard abortion being talked about, but I always heard women don't get pregnant. Don't get pregnant if you're not ready to, if you're not married. You know, don't get pregnant because that will ruin your education and all your plans, all that. Guys, don't sleep around because 
don't, you know, don't, you know, uh, you know, don't have a kid at wedlock. So it was never, so, I mean, those are all, it's good to say, don't, you know, fornicate, don't, don't sin. But if you're not addressing the fact that, look, some of you might sin. And when you sin, you might get pregnant. Here is how to be godly after the fact. That is before that, but after the fact. So if you don't address that, then people will say, wait a minute. Now, I don't want my sin and my shame to be known. So I have to get an abortion. And I think that's also one of the issues, too. But see, I also think that that conversation has to be had with boys and men. Because when one person gets pregnant, two people get pregnant. You know, it's not like, right, oh, right. here, let me pull you to the side, ladies, and tell you how to handle your sin. If you get, you know, how to handle the aftermath of your sin. No, let me bring the couple together because they have now committed this yeah. act. And it's like, yeah. y'all got pregnant, y'all. Y'all <laughs> having a baby. Yeah. It's not a yeah. me kind of thing. It's yeah. a we. Yeah, yeah, Mm-mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a, a ton of there's been, there's been a lot of comments, but I think we've covered most of the the critical questions. Um, our friend Amy um, wanted to uh, ask the same question I did about answering uh, why would you bring a child into the world that wasn't wanted or would suffer poverty, which is a very common objection. And, and so that was a good discussion. I think that, you know, this has really been helpful to me. I've, I've, Learn some things here. So I want to uh, commend people to Sam's blog. Once again, slow to write, go uh, subscribe to his blog. I mean, he has, I'm not a big blog follower person, but if you enjoy this show, you need to go subscribe to Sam's blog and follow him on Twitter and other places. Cause he's covering a lot of the similar uh, conversations that we like to talk about on the show and really bringing the Christian worldview to, to bear on real life situations. So uh, go check him out. Yes. Yes. Check him out. Read his stuff. It's all good. Yes. All good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. (laughs) We'd love to have you on again sometime, Sam. You've got a lot of great content and. Well, thank you so much. I would love to be back. Thank you guys for making me feel so comfortable. I'm a blogger. I'm not yet too confident just, doing interviews and speaking and things like that. But you guys made me feel very, very comfortable. And oh, good. I, I appreciate that. So thank you for one of my thoughts. I, I re, I'm really honored. No, it, you, it, it was good. It was challenging. I learned some, learned some things and it was very good. So yes. thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Take care. All right. Bye. Right. Bye guys. Okay. Um, I want to go to this comment really All right. quickly. Sure. Kimba says, well, then tell women they better, I, I, I'm reading into it. Um, tell women they better make up their minds. Either men have a say and matter or they don't. And I don't know that that's the conversation. Like that we need to tell men, oh, you matter or oh, you don't. I think that we, especially as Christians, need to create a space where it is your voice is here. Like there, there's no back and forth like, oh, today you matter. Oh, you don't know. It's, it's here. This is, you belong at the table. And in the conversation of abortion, you belong at the table. Your voice yeah. is, is part of it. It's not, it's not like, you know, oh, I, I need, I don't know. Like, uh, like you I don't decide who matters and who doesn't. Yeah. That's it's, it. It's it's in the Christian worldview. We're we're not advocating for worldly feminism, where we tell men your voice matters or 
or it doesn't. And if it doesn't go away, that's not how we proceed as Christians. How we proceed as Christians is that we are all created in the image of God and we need each other Mm -hmm. as part of the creation mandate to rule and reign the earth. Yes. And and we are created to co-rule and reign. So we don't get to tell each other. You don't have a seat at the table. You don't have a seat at the table. Yes, but that is a very critical theory, ideology of, you know, these people are oppressive. Get rid of them. They don't matter. They've been oppressive for so long. We're going to take away their voice. Right. Or cancel culture. Right. Which is a part of that that situation as well. Like, oh, um, I don't like what he's saying today. Cancel him. Right. We don't participate in cancel culture. Yeah. We need one another. And especially as the body, we need to to attack this, attack the, the issue of abortion in a unified stance. Yeah. Our friend Susanna says, um, okay, we are discussing the problem, but what are some practical solutions? And I am so glad you asked that, Susanna, because another show that Monique and I have been trying to work on is getting somebody um, from a local uh, pregnancy resource center on the show. So we want to do a whole separate conversation about practical solutions. And so we're going to continue in the pro-life conversation because we believe it is a it's a big discussion. We had Uju on the show a few months ago talking about from a global perspective, what's happening through the Gates Foundation and population control and reproductive health and other euphemisms for killing children. Having Sam on was just another angle of focusing on the black community in particular and some of the connections about critical theory. We're going to continue this conversation, uh, trust me, because we are wanting to help equip people to have these discussions. So we're looking actively for a good guest. So if anyone knows someone who runs a pregnancy resource center, get us the hookup because we really want to interview somebody, especially if they're working in an inner city or urban context um, where the cases are the hardest. I would say right off the bat though, as Christians, let's not be afraid or timid about the conversation. Let's have those conversations so that we are equipped, so that we are aware of, you know, what's being said out in culture. Um, yeah, I think right off the bat, now I could go down from a, a sociological standpoint of all the things that I see wrong that contribute to, to abortion. That's what we've done, like welfare programs, poor education, yeah. poverty, violence. How do we begin to rectify all of those things? Well, I firmly believe that that starts with a Christian mandate. I believe that that starts with that Christian framework, but all of that is something to unpack and that needs to be threaded out more. And I do agree that having someone on from a pregnancy resource center can, can address some of, some of those issues. But what is it? What are those? There's a lot. Yeah. You and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, the local church, especially churches that are, there can be fairly affluent churches in inner city areas mm-hmm. but the, but the parishioners have no knowledge of financial resources yeah. or financial education and have like two dimes in their bank account yeah there's there's it's, a disconnect it's all kind of backward a lot of the time there's so, a disconnect you know we've we've got to have some other conversations so yeah it's this is good another piece in the puzzle as we sort of try to explore issues of justice from a historically christian standpoint we're not going to go down the path of the culture's definition yeah. of justice, 
We're not letting them run the conversation, but Monique and I definitely believe Christ must reign. Christ will reign. And we, as God's people, partner with Christ and bring all things into submission under Christ. And that is our mandate as Christians. But there's some areas where we're doing a pretty good job, and there's other areas where we got a ways to go Mm -hmm. in, in how we're doing that. So good, good conversation. All right, Amy says... uh, There's a lot. Amy says, did you mean women say my body, my choice, but when they choose to have the baby, the man has no say? I think she's talking to Kimba. Oh, okay. Annette said, um, people will be more responsible if abortions were restricted. And I responded, I don't know that I'm convinced of that. I think that um, people will find a way. I think before abortions were legal, people still you know, had back alley abortions. Um, and that's unfortunate. It might go down though. Cause it would be harder, but yeah, I, I don't you're, know. You're skeptic. I'm, I'm a skeptic but, but of that. People tried to kill babies in the ancient world. That, and that's my point. You exactly. Know? I think we didn't that invent this. We just made it like medically easier. There has to be a conversation of morality. It's either wrong to kill people or, or it's so, okay. Yeah. Like you, it, if it's, a it's human, one of those two yeah. things, but until we address the 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 conversation of morality, what is moral, what isn't, I don't know that I'm convinced that abortion will go down because the hearts of men are wicked. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, we've got to start with a heart transformation, a gospel transformation yeah. first. Okay, you ready for another big topic? Well, there's that. Yes. Now it's time for the tweet of the week. Disco version. Okay, my tweet of the week this week is from Neil Shenvey, because I just, I heart him. He's Uh, wonderful. So um, we're going to play this clip here in a minute uh, from uh, Twitter. But he says, this clip helped me understand Chesterton's comment. And Chesterton is a very famous Catholic um, commenter. He's kind of the precursor to C.S. Lewis and influenced Lewis. Um, It lived about 100 years ago. Uh, Once abolish the God and the government, I think what he means is once we abolish God, the government becomes the God. And I think that this is really the cultural moment that we're in right now. And this kind of ties into what Samuel was saying earlier about socialism, because socialism is a functional naturalism. It is a worldview that is, it it is the functioning or outworking of the naturalistic worldview. I'm going to go back to reading that. You can put it back. There we go. We need some authority to ground human rights, take God away. And it falls to the state to grant or unfortunately to withhold rights. When we read in the Declaration of Independence, which is part of our founding documents as a nation, that we have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Those come from the creator. Mm -hmm. They were endowed to us by the creator. They don't come from the government. So the government then can't take away rights that they never gave us. But we have shifted. And we have shifted. I'm going to just echo a lot of things that Sam said earlier about socialism, that we are living in functional socialism right now. Crisis socialism was what he called it. And so now the government is telling 
us what our rights are and, and when we can gather and what we can do. And, 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 you know, there's questions I have about what precedence that's setting. But let's listen to this clip here um, that Neil posted. So Harvard Law School is hosting an anti-homeschooling conference in June. And um, this this uh, talking head here is going to explain what happens and what Neil was talking about in his tweet, that when you take God out of the picture, this is what it sounds like mm-hmm. when the government becomes God. State needs to be the ultimate guarantor of a child's well-being. There's just no alternative to that. The reason parent-child relationships exist is because the state confers legal parenthood. Okay, we're going to play that again. The first words out of his mouth are, the state gives people their rights. All right, let's play it again. The state needs to be the ultimate guarantor of a child's well-being. There's just no alternative to that. The reason parent-child relationships exist is because the state confers legal parenthood on people. The state... Okay. That is like a massive worldview statement. And if people don't understand what is happening right now in our culture, they need to wake up to the reality that the state is wanting to come in and confer rights and give rights, but they do it under the the phraseology of protection. Yes. Safety. Yes. Help. Yes. Because children are an oppressed people group. They are an oppressed class. So talk to us about this connection to critical theory. Well, critical theory constantly is in investigating or making itself busy with the, the ideas of who is oppressed and who are the oppressors and the goal is to continuously flip that and to bring freedom to those who are oppressed and so children having to obey their parents um as we are taught in scripture or um children needing to go to school or learn certain things or not learn certain things would be oppressive children not being able to choose their their sex would be oppressive because they don't have the, the the freedom of choice. So if people are buying into critical theory when it comes to feminism or race issues, what they have to understand is this is a train of thought that has other cars hooked to it that are coming along. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. It's all the same justification. So if you're going to say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm for Christian feminism or I'm for Christian critical race theory, you better know but what's hooked to that is queer theory and and child rights. And this is what child rights are going to look look at or look for, look like. That the if your child gets pregnant, they don't have to tell you. Yeah. They can get an abortion without your consent. Because now the um, parent is yeah. the oppressor. Mm-hmm. They're in the oppressed group. And so now the state must come along and protect the children. Now, this week in Harvard Magazine which is the same group that's sponsoring this homeschooling conference. Um, There was an article called the risks of homeschooling. Um, And I'm going to try to be as gracious and nice and not sarcastic as I possibly can, but it's really going to test my holiness here. So go back up to that graphic, the, um, the picture scroll down just a hair. Yeah, there it is. I want you to notice something about this picture. Notice 
the child who's being homeschooled? What are her, what does her window look like? Prison cell. Yeah. And then what are the books that they're looking at that they're using? The Bible is one of them. And look at the other children. What are they doing? They're outside playing, having fun. This is like every bad stereotype about homeschoolers all in one graphic. Okay. But I think it's interesting that the Bible is one of the books, but reading, writing, and arithmetic are also there. And that makes me wonder, hmm, I wonder what you're thinking or possibly not saying about the way children's education should should shift. Yeah. What are the important tenets of education? Because it used to be reading, math, and writing, English, like science, all of those things. But now is it more things of like gender studies and the queer theory and, and teaching kids your body, your choice, and what your rights are? What are, what are we shifting into when it comes to educating children? Because also many homeschoolers are religious. Now, not all of them are Christian. Some Jewish people homeschool their children. Mm -hmm. Muslim people homeschool their children. Um, There's a large and growing Catholic community. So it's not just all white, middle-class Baptists who are homeschooling. Homeschooling is a diverse community. But many of them have the thread in common of being religious, which is another oppressor group if you're a Christian. Now, if you're on a minority religion, you you would be in the oppressed class. But many, but Christians are considered an automatic oppressor class. So if you have a white homeschooling Christian family, that's triple oppression on the child right there. Um, And so this is how our world is thinking about this. And so this conference that's coming up um, is literally a conference. Uh, it's yeah, Bob's got it here. This is a homeschooling conference that's coming in June. Now scroll down just a little bit. Notice that it's from the child advocacy, uh, program at Harvard. So go down to the description a little bit more right here. It, it talks about the focus. Notice in the fourth line, the focus will be on problems of educational deprivation and child maltreatment that too often occur under the guise of homeschooling. I'm like, are you, are you being serious right now? It's, it's, (laughs) it's definitions and it is, you know, definitions like what is defined as essential. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what is defined as trauma. What is defined as maltreatment? There is among critical theory, such a shift in definition so that now I can be talking about one thing and you're talking about something completely different. What I see is holistic. You see is being maltreatment. Yeah. Uh, our friend Amy says uh, homeschooling is the next target for takeover. The state must indoctrinate. I really hope you're wrong, Amy, but I suspect that might be where we're going. That, you know, un- we, we have created a precedent now that, that the government can do a lot under mm-hmm. the banner of health and safety. So now that they've done this, they've shut down the entire economy for health and safety reasons. What else could they do? Um, what else is possible? What doors are open now? And I think that maybe there's some panic because so many people are functionally homeschooling right now. It's like, well, how do we, how do we get that back? You know, we got to have more state control But we need to understand that this is rooted and grounded in a worldview that the state wants to confer rights. 
And I've been talking a lot about this concept of sphere sovereignty. And I think this is just a great example Mm -hmm. of this. From a biblical point of view, the sphere that God has appointed for children is parents. Parents educate their children. That is part of their job. The state has other jobs, but all of these things, the state, the church, and family are all under the authority of God. And God appoints leaders. God appoints parents. God appoints shepherds and, and, you know, over the church. But we have our own spheres. When the government starts saying that they confer rights, they are putting themselves in the place of God. And we are headed down a very dangerous path. Yep. So that is my tweet of the week. Let's see if there's any tweet of the week. Let's see if there's any um, other comments here. Tracy, who I'm pretty sure is a homeschooler, uh, say parents are pulling their children out left and right. And the schools don't want to let them do that. Yeah. And there are financial consequences for that. You don't get as much government money uh, for your school. If you, if you're um, losing your, your students, If children are not being schooled at all, claiming to be homeschooled, then I have an issue with that. I think the child has a right to an education. Well, here's my question then, bringing that up, because I think that's a good point. Like, you can get, and I've seen it, like, oh, well, I'm going to homeschool my child, and now the child is at home in an abusive situation because the parents don't want the school to get wind of the fact that the child is abused and has bruises. What you homeschooled? So, what are the precautions that are in place so that there can be some kind of guarantee that the child is learning? Is there any? Well, it depends on the state. Different states have different rules and different obligations. Um, but I think that that is something that's usually put forward as a big problem when I think it's actually like an extremely rare problem. I think it's something to be talked about. I think it's something to be addressed, but it's like saying, well, we have these, these exceptions over here. So now we're going to overturn this whole system over here, a system which generally works. No, I and understand so, that. I'm you just, know, there, but there are standardized tests mm-hmm. that many States require uh, that students have to perform at the end of the year. Um, there's, you know, if the child does ever want to go to school, Um, They still have to comply with getting in the school and meeting some basic requirements. So if the child hasn't been properly educated, they're never going to be mainstreamed. And it is extremely rare that it wouldn't be found out, you know, that that there was that there were problems. You know, I think that people have unless the child is like being locked in a closet somewhere, people go out. And and, See, it would, and I it don't would, know that I agree with that. It, I mean, speaking honestly from a line of social work where I literally last year did a report on kids who were pulled out of school be, under the guise of, oh, I homeschool my kids, but they were being abused at my current job. Yeah. I don't I'm like, oh, you know, and then I think back over the years when I worked um, with children and family services and I'm like, oh, you, you know, I didn't really think that homeschooling was a thing. I thought that was maybe just a little, you know thing that people said when this was the case. And so now that I do know that homeschooling is a big thing and people really do do it and they do it well. Yeah. I wonder to me, it just seems like it would be responsible 
of the, it would be the responsibility of someone somewhere down the line, especially like if you have to send in standardized tests and things like that for people to be able to say, okay, there are checks and balances in place so that we can protect the child. Because I have seen with my own eyes, it's not like a theory or, you know, thing like that. And I'm sure that it's it's a problem. I'm sure it's a problem. But I also think it's a very rare problem. And I think that most states require standardized tests. Many states require you to turn in paperwork. Um, If you go through a charter school, you have to turn in, oftentimes you have to turn in um, work samples and lesson plans. And there's, there's quite a rigorous amount of paperwork you have to turn in. If you're part of a, in California called an ISP, which is an independent um, kind of sort of like a, it's a step above a co-op, but you're actually part of a school, but still independent. You still have to turn in uh, samples. I used to have to save samples and turn in lesson plans and outlines and goals and learning outcomes and all of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it it would, you would have to like really subvert the system to go completely undetected. Um, you know, and if your kid wants to play sports or engage in any outside world activities, I think, you know, you, at some point you've got to conform to some society standards. It would be, you know, not, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I would just but, argue yeah. that it's easier than what you think. It could be. I, I do. I, yeah. I, and so I think that Susanna brings up a good point, but I, um, I definitely, completely disagree with you know the state coming in and saying we can't you know you can't educate your child in the way that you see fit to educate your child or that they confer rights or things like that i'm just saying if if homeschooling is the choice there should be things in play to protect the child yeah i mean some sort of minimal amount of requirements i think is a fair point but that would take some some discussion i think where we're at now is far beyond far beyond that so okay i guess that's it thanks for joining us hope you enjoyed the show uh be sure to catch the replay of last week's show we had a great discussion uh with our friend brian crane from the orange county rescue mission talking about hunger and homelessness um monique shared some of her experience about working at the food pantry and she went back to work this week and um it is busy there it is. We yeah. saw 200 families yesterday. 194 families. In a typical week, it would be about what? 60? Well, this was at a different location. Um, so at this one location, we they would normally see, I'd say, 40 to 50. Yeah. And last night, it was 194. The same at, you know, our other locations. I So we encourage you yeah. to go find, if you want to do something really practical, you got some time or you want to help your kids have some some real world service experience, maybe find the food bank in your area. Talk to them about what their needs are. Don't assume you know their needs. Go ask them, what are your needs? Do they need volunteers? Do they need food donations? I know Monique's food pantry is really hurting right now for food. They don't have um, uh, the, the donations are just been completely depleted. And so find out about your local food bank, what you can do to help support your direct community, especially um, those that don't receive government support. Yeah. You know, like your private, your, your Christian faith based 
food pantry that might be run out of a church or might have a standalone building, but is completely faith-based because they don't receive any public funds. They're not getting money from, you know, the government and things like that. And that is what allows them to be able to stay in that faith conversation with clients, being able to pray or give out Bibles and things like that. That's really important. And so we don't want to, and I know at my job, my, our board and my executive director don't want to go down the line of accepting, you know, public money. And so we have to depend on the donations of, you know, private citizens within the community to be able to help you know, um, fund that. All right, my friends, thank you so much. And we want to thank you for watching all your support, all your shares, your comments, your likes. Thank you so much. And we hope you enjoyed the show, found it educational and that your faith is growing as a result of watching the show. Follow Sam. Yes. Slow to write. Follow Sam. All right. Take care, everyone. See you next week. God bless. Bye.